Hi, and welcome to Hope for the Family, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. In this series, members of our family support group share how they've been able to find peace and freedom as the loved ones of alcoholics through interviews, sharing their stories, and more. For more information about our family support group, including weekly meetings, please visit magdalenhouse.org forward slash family. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Stephanie Crawford. I'm a recovered alcoholic on staff at the Magdalene House. Um, And each month I get the privilege of interviewing a recovered family member of an alcoholic or addict from our amazing family support group. And this series is called Hope for the Family. And if you'd like more information about our family support group, uh, whether your loved one has been through Maggie's or not, um, you can find that information on our website at magdalenhouse.org forward slash family support. And this month uh, we have Tanya and I'm going to let Tanya introduce herself and then she's going to give a little bit of her story and what led her into the position to be in a family support group. Go ahead, Tanya. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for asking me to be here and to, and to share um, kind of what I've been through. So yes, my name is Tanya and I am the wife of a recovered alcoholic. So he wasn't always recovered. That's for sure. We definitely um, went through the ringer of alcoholism. And man, it, it was interesting and it was, you know, it was, it was a roller coaster, but um, I guess kind of, you know, the, what led me to finding a family support group was, was truly because of him. And, and honestly, I, I thought that going to a family support group was going to teach me how to sober him up. And um, that was not the case, but what I got from it was so much more. Um, and I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, I am actually a member of um, a group called Al-Anon, and it's truly been life-changing for me. But background of me is that I, I grew up in a um, kind of a nuclear family. I did not grow up in alcoholism. Um, in fact, my dad, I've never seen my dad drunk ever. My mom, yeah, you know, here and there, but Even my mom, she would have like one glass of wine after work um, while she was cooking dinner when I was growing up. And that was it. I don't think I saw my mom drunk until, I mean, probably I was in my teens or or later. I I couldn't pinpoint it exactly, but either way, I didn't grow up in that um, kind of lifestyle in my house. In fact, my dad, he always um, kind of you know, figuratively, not literally beat into my brother and I's head that we shouldn't drink alcohol because alcoholism runs in our family. And what he meant by that was his own dad um, was a, well, he says he was an alcoholic. He died when I was very young. So honestly, I don't know if he truly was or not, or if he even identified as an alcoholic. But from the stories that my dad has said, you know, um, he grew up in a, in a home that was um, 
fraught with um, with issues related to alcoholism. And so he has always been very against um, drinking because it's genetic, he says. And um, if you drink, you're going to become an alcoholic. And so growing up, I truly believed that if I were to drink alcohol, that I would then be an alcoholic. That's not the case in my, in, you know, for me. I absolutely can drink and nothing happens to me, at least not in an alcoholic way. <laughs> um, so anyways, as I got older, though, I was always a very, I was a very precocious kid. I was very much a leader. I wanted to be, I was a people pleaser. I wanted to be head of the class. I wanted to be, you know, captain of the team. I wanted to be the lead, the line leader. You know, I always wanted to be, if the teacher needed help, my hand was first in the air to help. And that was my role. You know, I, I loved being that helper and I loved making other people proud of me so that um, in the ways that I helped them. <laughs> and so um, I guess as I got older, that kind of manifested itself in a different way um, in my relationships as I started getting into romantic relationships. You know, I didn't see this pattern in myself until I started in, in system family support into Al-Anon and into different, um, going to different family groups um, when my husband would be in and out of rehab. And that pattern was, I always found people to be in a relationship with that in some way needed my help, usually related to drugs or alcohol. Can I, and, you know what I think is so weird? Sorry, um, can I say this for a minute? So you're the third woman that I have had on whose significant other led them to family support. Mm -hmm. And all three of you, had alcoholism somewhere in your family. Isn't that so weird? It's the weirdest thing. Yes. And I find that like almost across the board um, with all the ladies that I've worked with in the past, you know, we all tend to have kind of similar, not necessarily similar backgrounds, just similar patterns um, in our backgrounds. And, and a lot of us don't see that pattern until it's pointed out to us when we seek it out. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah. So actually I had a very, you know, not, not a very, but a, a, a serious relationship. And the, this particular person, he had a lot of drug and alcohol issues. And I mean, it was like my project to try to fix him. And I've tried and tried for like two and a half years. And I'm like, I, nothing I did worked. <laughs> I tried everything. Um, and so finally I was done with that. And then I got rid of that relationship and, um, and I remember telling my, my roommate at the time, I was like early 20s. And I told her, you know, gosh, the next serious relationship I've, I'm in, I can't, no, no drug issues, no alcohol issues. Like they're going to need to be like straight laced, you know, goody two shoes kind of guy. And, you know, sometime later I met who was going to be my husband. God works in funny ways because at the time, he did not seem to have drug or alcohol issues. And um, we actually, we were together for, we met right at the end of college and hit it off. You know, we had a great relationship, um, no drug and alcohol issues to my knowledge. But he did tell me that his dad had alcohol issues and that's why he didn't really like to drink a whole bunch. And he didn't want to be like that. He didn't want that for himself so really his dad was my first kind of um 
introduction to alcoholism. And I don't, to this day, I don't think that he identifies, his father identifies as an alcoholic, right? And that's really for the alcoholic to identify as. That's not something that I can say someone is. So I prefer to just say alcohol issues for him. And so, you know, I, I had no idea. Was he sober at the time? Your significant other, was he sober? I mean, not sober in, in the sense that we, I mean, we were at the end of our college years. So we absolutely partied together. Um, we absolutely had fun, but there was no like daily drinking or daily drug use or anything like that. It was just, it was kind of a partying weekend social thing. And, um, and that was good. That was, we had, were great. <laughs> we were, we dated for about six, six or seven years before we got married um, because I had a plan in life. You know, I had a career plan. I was going to finish college and then I was going to go to grad school and then I was going to get a career. And, um, and so, you know, no man was going to get in the way of that. <laughs> so, That's so we awesome. Took time. <laughs> we took our time getting married, but, um, but actually after we got married, um, you know, we intentionally, you know, we were started family planning and we got pregnant. And so when I got pregnant, I was like, okay, you know, now that I'm pregnant, I can't socially drink and party. So how about you not either? And he said, yeah, that's a great plan, you know, and he was on board. And um, at that time, I think it's hard for me to remember for sure, but I think I was starting to like, be like, gosh, he drinks a lot, but I mean, we're still, we're, we're young. We don't have no really ties. We're, we don't have a kid yet. <laughs> but um, from then on, he was unable to stop drinking. And, you know, three things I've learned about alcoholism is that it's chronic, progressive, and fatal. And um, his was absolutely uh, chronic, progressive, and almost fatal a few times. And he got um, very sick, very fast. Can you explain, in case we have listeners on here who don't know what chronic and progressive mean in, in terms of alcoholism, can you can you tell them that what that Absolutely. means? Absolutely, yes, yes. I had no idea either. And if I was a first-time listener, um, I would not have known what that meant. But I've since learned. So chronic just means that it is something that he will always have this disease. I mean, it is a disease. It is this scientifically backed. I'm not here to get into that because I'm not a doctor, but it means that if he were to drink today, his body would react in the same way that it did when he was still drinking before he got sober. So it's something that for him, it never goes away. It is chronic. Progressive means that it's going to get worse with time if they continue to ingest the alcohol or drugs, but I only know about alcohol. So, and for him, it absolutely progressed. And, um, you know, it's almost like, you know, for me, if I drink, I can get a tolerance level to a certain point and then I'm done. <laughs> I will get sick. I will write it off the next day and I will not be able to drink for weeks because I got really sick from it. But for him, it just meant he needed more and then more and more. And so there was no like, you know, like typical tolerance level or, or whatever you would want to call that to the point where he did have, you know, some he developed seizures when he would try to quit when he, I mean, his withdrawal symptoms would be really bad when he would try to, when he would try to sober up on his own. Um, he had three different seizure 
um, episodes um, over time, almost died in his sleep throwing up. Um, and that's what I mean by fatal <laughs> is that, you know, even though, so, you know, everybody knows about cirrhosis of the liver. And I think that's what everybody thinks about when they think of it's fatal or they think overdose, but um, alcoholism can be fatal in other ways. You can actually die from it, you know, through a car accident. I mean, to me, that's dying alcoholism just in an, in, in an external way, but, um, but seizure disorders, um, neurological disorders can happen um, amongst other organ failure, things like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think this kind of comes up um, sometimes, but I feel like it's kind of what's the word I'm looking for <sighs> mainstream or people often think that alcohol can't be as bad as drugs mm -hmm. or, you know, that it can't, you know, because it's legal, it can't really destroy your life like drugs can kind of thing, you know? Absolutely. Uh, so I think it's great that you're talking on that because it absolutely can. Yeah. And I would, I would even say it's almost more deadly because of that legality aspect, because I think that that kind of gives us like this false sense of security over alcohol, um, especially someone who, um, cannot control their drinking and not because they don't want to. I mean, my husband did not, he was not happy that he was drinking uncontrollably. He did not want to be like that. He did not want to, it's not like he woke up one day and was like, oh, it'd be a great idea to be an alcoholic, you know? Um, he absolutely wanted to quit. And he would wake up with a firm resolution that he wasn't going to drink anymore. And, and he could go a few days. He could even go a few weeks. Um, but he would relapse and every relapse was worse than the last until he started having, or once he started having some pretty significant health issues, that still wasn't enough to make him quit. You know, that it, it, even though he wanted to, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it was shocking for us to learn, um, both of us, that the seizure that he had was because he wasn't drinking. I mean, he had a seizure when he was sober and I think it was on maybe day three or day four and um, he would have extreme withdrawals usually by day three, day two and day three. And that first seizure episode was very scary because we didn't know that that's why it was happening. I mean, I had my suspicions, but you know, and, and when they told us he could absolutely die from this, it was, to me, it was a wake up call for him. It probably was too, but you know, that, that one enough. seizure wasn't the, wasn't the last time, so. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, I know I kind of got off topic a little bit, but what was it that brought? Did you come into family support group first? Were you introduced to family support group before you were introduced to Al-Anon? You know, I think they kind of happened almost simultaneously. I think actually, no. I did find Al-Anon first, and it was only because uh, my, one of my good friends um, had a little bit of uh, kind of background in some addiction and recovery stuff. So she was like, have you ever heard of Al-Anon? I'm like, no, never heard of it. And she's like, well, it's like AA, but for, for the family members. I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, I look it up. I Google it. I mean, I'm desperate to get my husband back to normal. You know, I mean... 
we had a five month old at this point, you know, when she tells me about Al-Anon and, and, you know, I just, I just want my husband back, you know, he was not who he normally was, you know, when I married him or when I fell in love with him. And um, I was very scared for him. I was scared for his life. I was very angry at him. You know, if you would have asked me at the time, I think I would have just told you I was angry at the situation, but um, I know that it was a lot of fear-based anger because um, I was scared of what was going to happen to him. So I did go into Al-Anon, um, like I just found a random group that was close to my house and hauled me and my little five-month-old baby um, into this room. And, you know, it was, I mean, I went in thinking I'm going to find like, you know, I think I said this already, like they were going to tell me how to sober him up. You know, I was intrigued, but I didn't think it was for me, mainly because the first group I ever went to, I was, you know, this young 30s with a little baby. <laughs> and um, I was probably the youngest person in the room by 30 years. And I was like, what am I doing here? Like, I was really kind of mad that I even had to be there in the first place. You know, I, I, I just want to be at home with my baby and my husband. And instead, I'm sitting here on a Tuesday night, spending an hour of my time listening to these ladies talk. But then he did go to his first rehab, probably I think our daughter was about seven or eight months the first time he went to a place. That was my first introduction to like family groups that um, you can find at, um, you know, sober living homes, inpatient rehabs, outpatient rehabs. Most places like that do have some sort of family support. And I had no idea, but um, that was my first kind of foray really into actually seeing that there are, there are family support groups out there. So what was your, like, what did that family support group teach you, mm. if anything? Mm -hmm. So when I first went into family support groups, uh, or this particular one, it was, at, um, I'm trying to remember, it was an inpatient rehab, but it was more of a, um, I can't remember what you call it, but like a, like a drying out kind of thing. Like he was just there to like dry out. I think he was only there for like two weeks or something. It wasn't like a 30 day stay or a 60 day stay or something. But they kept saying, you need to stay on your side of the street, you know? And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, what do you mean stay on my side of the street? He's on my street, you know? Like, but I did hear a lot of kind of the same recurring things that it's not my fault. Uh, I can't control it. Uh, I didn't cause it. As much as other people may have told me I caused it, including my, my alcoholic, <laughs> um, because I was so mean or um, that, you know, if I, if I wasn't so mean, then maybe he wouldn't drink as much. And it's like, and you know, you hear these things and you're like, okay, okay, well, maybe. So I tried to go the opposite way. And I try to be really sweet and, and loving. And then it's like, well, you're now you're enabling him. <laughs> like, well, crap, am I enabling him? Or am I being too mean? Oh, you mean it's all of the above. <laughs> so it, it, it really kind of, you know, I, I, I was very confused, very confused about even what I, sh what I should or should not be doing and, and how to help him. Uh, turns out there wasn't a lot I could really physically do to help him, you know, like forcing him to go to rehab, um, keeping track of, have you talked to your sponsor today? Um, how many meetings did you go to today? 
or what was the meeting about? Or, you know, you just kind of being in his business all the time about his recovery. And um, that took some time for me to learn how to not want to control that <laughs> and, and not even want to control it, not just how to not control his issues because they weren't mine. Yeah. Now, I remember you talking about like, you know, learning how to detach with love mm -hmm. kind of thing. First, I want to ask you, though, did you recover? Like, did you recover before he got sober or was it after he got sober? So it was before, actually. And I, so kind of the timeline for me when I went in to like my, graced my first family support groups and, and Al-Anon kind of right around the same, like within the same three months. Um, and I, I kind of floundered in those, in those rooms and those groups, because as much as I'm a people pleaser, I wanted to do what they were telling me to do. And, and if that family support counselor told me, I want you to go to five Al-Anon meetings um, in this month, you better believe I was there five times. You know, I was going to do what you said to do. Um, but just going to meetings was not me finding recovery at all. <laughs> as much as I wished it was that, it was definitely not. Um, in fact, there were times when I found myself leaving an Al-Anon meeting angrier or more upset than when I walked in the room. And I think it was partly because I was learning more about alcoholism and learning more about the manipulation of alcoholism. I was learning about the fact that I was manipulating him and he was manipulating me. And we were just in a really, really sick circle. As much as we both loved each other, we were not doing either of us a favor um, with our behavior. And I, I truly thought that if he would just sober up that our problems would go away. And it took him having some sobriety. He would get, you know, a couple weeks of, so of sobriety and I would find myself spinning in my brain, like just kind of spinning out of control, like overthinking everything he was doing, kind of obsessing about where he was, where he wasn't. Was he lying to me? Was he telling the truth? I mean, I would do the kiss and sniff every time I saw him. I would kiss him just so I could sniff his breath. And I would obsessively watch his little dot on the location thing on my, on my phone on our find my, find my friends or whatever that app was called. And I would find myself obsessively watching where he was. And so anyways, I kept going to these Al-Anon groups and um, I finally found this one that kept talking about working the program and working the steps and getting a sponsor, but doing it for yourself. You know, finally, I kind of just got sick of myself because I started seeing this pattern where he would have some sobriety and, you know, I would start like after about a week, I would start to like just be on him like white on rice. I mean, I would anything I could fuss about, I would, you know, whether it was the dishes not being done, whether it was he didn't do enough around the house because at that point, he was not working. He was not able to hold a job. He was still very, very sick, um, even though he would find some periods of sobriety. And, and usually his periods of sobriety were like two to four weeks. And then he would relapse 
and it would last for weeks or months and it would get really, really bad. And to the point where he was drinking nonstop 24 hours a day. And for him, he actually got to the point where he, he went, I want to say 14, 15, 16 days. I mean, like over two weeks um, where he literally did not eat a morsel of food. It was alcohol, cigarettes, and water. And it was baffling to me how he was still alive. I mean, he was a shell of a person. And it was very sad to watch. But at that point, um, fortunately, I had found a sponsor. And I kind of already gotten sick of myself going through these periods of him relapsing and me freaking out. And my daughter started. She was a little over two, two and a half when I truly started to um, work the 12 steps of Al-Anon and she was starting to have her own behaviors. She would kind of copy me. She would give him the silent treatment. She would ignore him. She would turn away from him if he tried to engage her. And um, then she started saying things like my daddy's drunk. And um, that was very hard for me because I know that she was only learning it from me. She was absolutely following me <laughs> and following what I was saying and doing. So I said, I'm going to do this for me. I am not going to just go to Al-Anon just because he's in an AA meeting. You know, by the grace of God, I, I did. And, you know, I, I found a sponsor that um, I didn't, I wasn't actually planning on asking this particular person to be my sponsor. I was, had a totally different plan. But at that point, I kept, people always kept telling me, you know, it's not about what your plan is. You know, it's about what the higher, your higher powers plan is. And I always refer to my higher power as God, but that can, your higher power can be whatever you see it as, right? And um, I didn't really even know how to tap into that. But one day, you know, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to this meeting tonight and I'm going to ask this particular person to be my sponsor. And um, wouldn't you know it, she wasn't there that night. And <laughs> I was very upset because I, I was ready. I was ready to take this next step into fixing me and not my husband, really truly because my daughter was being affected and it was very distressing to me. And she was only two and a half. And um, there was a speaker that night at this particular group. And she just, everything was, she was saying was like, wow, this, this lady has got some recovery like in her past. Like she, she's living the recovered family member life. And I want that. So um, I asked her to be my sponsor. And the next day she told me, call me tomorrow. If you're serious, you'll pick up the phone and you'll call me tomorrow. I don't even want to talk about it tonight. I'm like, okay, sounds good. So I did. I called her the next day and things have started changing rapidly from then on. And I'm very, very grateful for it. So I probably worked through the steps all 12. You're never done working the steps, but once I got through to step 10, then you, you kind of live, I don't, you know, if you're, if you're not familiar with the steps, you kind of live in steps 10, 11, and 12. Those are kind of the steps for daily life and for kind of how I approach living now. And to get to that point for me was about three or four months. And those three or four months were um, eye-opening. I was learning a lot about myself. And even then, from then on, I was still learning, but I kind of had these tools kind of under my belt that I could use every single day. And there were days when I was not good at it and I would yell at my husband <laughs> and I would fall back, but I would call my sponsor and she would 
kind of set me set me back straight again and remind me, you know, what my job was, which was not to control him, which was not to berate him and to leave him alone. <laughs> so. So you were talking about the woman like speaking, you know, recovery and like mm-hmm. she was living the recovered family member life. What does that look like mm-hmm. for somebody who, who doesn't, who doesn't understand? Yeah. You know, when I, when I'm specifically referencing her, but really just, I think any family member that has found recovery is that she was able to live her life in a way that she didn't necessarily have to cut off every family, every family member that had, um, or the family member that had alcohol or drug issues that she could still love them, care about them and accept them for exactly who they were, regardless of whether they were using or not. And I wanted that so badly. I wanted to be able to accept my husband, even if he was drinking, even if that meant that we weren't going to be together, even if it meant that we were going to be divorced and I was going to have to navigate that whole single parenthood. um, I still wanted to be able to do it in a loving way. And I certainly did not know how to do that. I was very mean place and I approached him in a very harsh way. It was, it was kind of, you know, all or nothing. You either follow what I said to do, which was not drink, <laughs> um, or you didn't. And if you didn't, you, you, you got the wrath of me. And, um, and, I, and, and she didn't have the wrath anymore. And even though her person was still using, she just had a different, just a different air about her and how she approached her, her loved one. And I, it was just mind blowing to me that, that could I actually obtain that? Could I actually still be nice to him? Even if we weren't together, even if we were together, but even if he were drinking and she said, yeah, you can, and you don't have to write him off. It, it was just, it was mind blowing to me because I didn't see how I could continue this life and not leave him behind and not, you know, cut him completely off. Are you or someone you love struggling with the inability to stop drinking? At the Magdalene House, we believe that alcoholism education and recovery is crucial to helping more alcoholic women and their families recover. Our staff is available to provide speakers to the public who will discuss the disease of alcoholism, how to help someone who may be struggling, and more available resources. To request a speaker, please visit our website, magdalenhouse.org education. Yeah, it sounds like from what I hear, it's like being dominated by another person's alcoholism to like being free. Absolutely. Um, I yeah, mean, I truly had to, you know, they, they do say that it's a family disease of alcoholism. And um, I was absolutely very sick um, in my own way. And some people will say, like you were even sicker you know in a sense because i didn't have the excuse of well um i acted that way because i was drunk you know i was completely sober in fact i was very angry at alcohol at that point i blamed alcohol for all my issues um and so i didn't drink at all at that point you know mm. so i didn't have that excuse and yet i would act completely irrationally i would um you know i, I would just try all these 
manipulative things. I mean, I would lie. I would lie to him. I would lie for him. <laughs> I would, you know, hide things from him and I would hide from other people and I'm very much self-isolated. Didn't want to be around my family members because if I was, then they were going to ask me about it. Um, I didn't want to be around my friends because if I did, then they were going to ask me about it. And if you asked me about it, then I would get all worked up and it would just kind of send me down a really bad mental path. I, you know, I didn't know how to not fall into that trap of obsessing about him. And then once that obsession over what's he doing, where's he going, what's he not doing, is he lying, you know, whatever it was, I didn't know how to, to stop that part of my myself. And, and I would, you know, then I would go off on my family members, um, you know, and, and I would kind of rope them into it too and rope them into the, the drama. And I really, I would manipulate them into getting them to do what I wanted them to do, to try to get him sober. Yes. Nothing, and it didn't work, you know. Yes, we call that rallying the troops. Oh, I was a very good rallier. <laughs> <laughs> so when did that, um, when did you start to change? Mm -hmm. So really, I started to change when I started going through the steps. And step four and step five is really um, steps for, I mean, in a very simplified way, self-reflection. And I mean, we could probably talk for two hours just on step four and step five, right? Um, but A, I didn't know that I needed to look at myself and my own behaviors, but I learned quickly that that, that was gonna be a part of this process um, because I blamed everything on him. I could justify every single one of my behaviors because of him. But the reality is that I'm responsible for my behavior regardless of another person's behavior. You know, regardless of my husband's drunk, I'm still responsible for the fact that I am screaming, yelling, and uh, hiding his keys and hiding his wallet, and cutting up credit cards and lying to my own parents, you know, leaving work. Um, I mean, doing all the things really just for self-preservation, but I was responsible for that. So I started looking at, you know, going through really in step five, it was more of recognizing that people are who they are and I can still accept them for exactly who they are. And that doesn't mean that I have to try to change them. Going through that, it was very, very eye-opening to me. It was very, almost a relief um, that I no longer had to, I didn't have to get offended when someone said something. I didn't have to take things personally. You know, I could say, I could, I could look at, like, for example, my husband, and he, he, you know, he would say things to me to get me riled up, you know, and, and I, and he would be drunk or he wouldn't be drunk. It didn't matter, but I would take that bait and I would fight back. My sponsor kept telling me, you don't have to fight back. You know, you can, you can choose to walk away. You can choose to cut somebody with your words, or you can choose to walk away. Now, you're used to getting the last word in. You're used to making sure that that person knows that they offended you, but it doesn't change anything. And I think that was the key is that even though I could, you know, cut you with my words and, and say really horrible things and get 
rally the troops onto my side and get them to be against you, it was it still didn't change anything. It still didn't change the fact that my husband was an alcoholic. It still didn't change the fact that my best friend had her own opinions about the situation or that my mother-in-law had her own opinions about the situation, um, that I could truly accept them for who they were and I could choose to go the path of kindness and love and tolerance without enabling somebody else, without mm. continuing the gossip mill or whatever it was. Once I got that through my head, um, I was able to start looking at myself in a different way and, and how I responded to people in a different way. You know, instead of like for my with my mother-in-law, she was very worried about her son. And, um, you know, she absolutely meant well, but she would drag me into her own drama. And I would, I mean, I would take those reins and join her on the drama train. And, you know, one of the things that my sponsor told me was, Tanya, you don't have to pick up the phone. I'm like, oh, well, that's a novel approach. You don't have to pick up the phone when she calls. You know, it's going to turn you, your brain going, it's going to turn you into kind of a monster because you're probably going to hop on that gossip train or that, or that, that what drama train with her. And then you're going to be upset and then you're going to take it out on your husband or you're going to then hang up the phone and call your, your best friend and you're going to fuss at her for the next hour. And, and I just lived in this drama of, of what was happening with my husband at all times. And when I started to step away from that and stopped answering the phone, yes, people did not like necessarily the fact that I was kind of changing the game, but I wasn't doing it out of malice and I wasn't doing it out of anger. Um, it truly was from a place of, I have to heal and to heal. One of the things I have to do is stop talking about my husband. If you need to talk to, if you need to find out about his whether he's drinking or not, whether he's found a job or not, whatever, you're gonna have to talk to him about it. And I can't be that, I can't be the liaison anymore. And um, it was hard at first, um, especially for other people who are used to that. They were used to me being the rock and the person that they could call to feel better about knowing that he was still alive, truly. And it sounds harsh, but Sometimes that's what it was. I haven't been able to get a hold of him for, for three weeks. Is, is everything okay? Yeah, he's just in the, in the back bedroom drunk. Like, he's fine, you know, but I didn't have to be that person anymore. And when I, when I started to step away from that, I was able to start healing and, um, and I was able to start treating him with kindness and love and tolerance in a way that I didn't know and in a way that wasn't to manipulate him into doing what I wanted him to do. Yeah, I love when you said, um, in order for me to heal, I have to stop talking about my husband. Mm -hmm. I just thought that that was so profound, you know? So I wanna talk about the detaching with love mm -hmm. because I've heard it, but I don't really understand it or know what it means. Can you talk about what that means sure. and what it, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And when I first heard it, I didn't know what it meant either. You know, I'm like detached with love. So I just like give them the silent treatment <laughs> or what, you know, but really detaching with love, at least in my 
experience, that meant that I didn't have to take his drinking personally, that he was not drinking to piss me off. He was drinking because he was a sick, sick man and he could not control it as much as he did not want to be drinking. He could not control it. And so what that meant was if I got home from work and he was drunk, I didn't have to scream and yell at him about it. I didn't even have to confront him about it. In fact, I, my sponsor was like, you're not allowed to confront him about it because it's not going to change anything. It's not going to change the fact that if he was drinking today, you confronting him, all that's going to do is lead to him lying about it, denying it, or admitting to it. And what happens? If he lies about it, you get mad. If he denies it, you get mad. If he admits it, you get mad. <laughs> and so what you can do instead is, I'm sorry that that happened to you today. Is there anything I can do to help you? Now, that comes with a caveat, but I don't have to say what the caveat is. And the caveat is, that doesn't mean that if he says, yeah, you can help me by going to get me a, a handle of vodka. No, I can help you by bringing you a glass of water. I can help you by bringing you the trash can to throw up in so that you're not puking all over my carpet. <laughs> but I can help you by just saying, sorry, you're dealing with that today. Um, if there's something you need from me um, within reason, come let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to be out here cooking dinner, hanging out with our baby, and good luck to you kind of a thing. I mean, not in so many words, but, um, but that's what I would do. And I mean, now there would be days where I would be like, okay, I'm not going to say anything. I'm driving home. I'm gripping the steering wheel. I know he's been drinking because I could hear it on the phone. I mean, I could hear it in the, the way he said hello on the phone, you know, like, um, I mean, I could spot it from a mile away. And so I'd be like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. And I'd get home and, you know, I would, I would do good for 10, 15 minutes. And then he would say something and he would push a button of mine. And I'd be like, well, you're the one that's drinking, you know? And every time that that happened, I would get better about calling my sponsor quickly and be like, oh my God, this is what just happened. Now it's been 20 minutes. He, I, I've already said all the horrible things. I've already threatened divorce three times today. And she would say, Tanya, <laughs> does, is that changing anything? Is he still drunk? Yes, he is. Okay. Are you able to make dinner calmly right now? No, I'm not. Are you able to go in the living room and play with your daughter in a calm manner? No, I'm not. <laughs> and I learned from that, you know, and every, t every time I kind of, that was like my own relapsing, you know, like um, people would say, how do you relapse in Al-Anon? I feel like that's how you relapse in Al-Anon. You, you fall back in your old behaviors. But I learned from that. And, um, and then I got better at it, got better at detaching. I got better at just being kind and loving and actually meaning it to the point where I, I didn't drive home white knuckling the steering wheel and saying, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. It was just, I don't need to say anything because it doesn't change anything, you know? And, and she always said expectations, you know, changing your expectations to reality, <laughs> not what you want is, is what we need to focus on. And what she meant by that was, your husband's an alcoholic and he's not a recovered alcoholic. He's a, he is an active alcoholic. So why would you expect for you to come home from work 
and him not be drunk. Your expectation should be he will be drunk because he is an active alcoholic who is very sick. Change that expectation so that when you get home, he met your expectation, <laughs> and which is a weird way of thinking about it, but my expectation of him wasn't going to change the outcome, right? He was in charge of the outcome of him. I was in charge of the outcome of me. I wanted to be able to come home, have a calm evening, make dinner, get my baby in bed, you know, get her a bath, you know, play with her, read books um, without screaming and yelling, without her being exposed to this toxicity that was happening. And I started seeing the benefits of that very quickly. And I can remember calling my sponsor one day and being like, oh, he's just pushing my buttons. And I can, I can tell you I'm about to flip my lid, but I haven't flipped it yet. And, and that was a big deal for me to have called her prior to me flipping out. And she said, Tanya, why do you still have buttons for him to push? We've been over this, you know? And, you know, that was like, you're right. I mean, he he's still a very sick person, but I'm healing, you know? I'm trying to move away from this sickness that I have. And part of that is, is allowing my buttons to get pushed <laughs> and, and then responding to those. You know, I'm responsible for my actions and my reactions. I'm not responsible for his actions or his reactions. So he did not like it when I treated him with kindness and tolerance and love because that was changing the name of the game. He no longer could point his finger at me and be like, you're nagging me all the time. I wasn't nagging him anymore. It was just like, sorry, you're dealing with that. And he'll tell you that for him, he was like, what is going on? Like, she must be serious now. She's totally going to divorce me. She's like secretly stashing away money. And she's like got this secret <laughs> plan to leave me. That's why she's being nice. And it wasn't like the secret plan was just that I was healing and leaving him alone, <laughs> leaving him be and letting him do his thing. So wow. yeah. I love that so much good stuff in that, especially the changing your expectations to meet reality. And cause I used to wonder like, um, cause people would say you can be okay, whether your loved one is, is drinking or using. And I like to put myself in other people's shoes, whether I know things are not. And I would always be like, but wouldn't that make it sound like that? Like it's, you can be okay if your person's getting drunk and because you just don't care if they're getting drunk kind of thing. But like the way that you just perfectly explained it about like seeing them with love and compassion. And then, so that's how you're responding. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to be okay. Mm -hmm. Regardless of your loved one is drinking or using. Mm -hmm. I just think that you just explained it so beautifully. So I know that he is sober now. Mm -hmm. How long has he been sober? So he has been sober, it'll be six years in September. So five and a half years. Oh, that's right? so good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because I want to make sure that we talk about this because I think it's so good, like being on the other on the other side of it. Um, you know, you talked about on the phone about how you're expecting, but what led up to that? Um, do you mind talking about that? Absolutely. Yeah. 
So, you know, if you would have asked me six and a half years ago <laughs> um, where I would be today, probably would have told you I was uh, either divorced or a widow. And I would have meant that wholly because, you know, six years, six and a half years ago, six years ago, you know, um, my husband was actively dying and um, killing himself by drinking, not necessarily intentionally, you know, um, but I would have laughed in your face if you would have told me that, you know, in, in five and a half, six years from now, you're going to be in a brand new house. We just bought a house and moved in like a week ago. I would have totally thought that I would have lost my house that we had, you know, the, the first house we bought, we just sold a week and a half ago. And um, I thought for sure I was going to lose the house because I couldn't pay the bills. I never would have thought that my daughter was going to have a sibling on the way, you know, and now I'm seven months pregnant and expecting in July. And, you know, I would not have told you that my husband was sober and living life to the fullest. Yeah, we, it, it was a process for us. You know, we definitely had to learn um, a new way of living. And for him, when he sobered up, um, I like to tell people about the story of him sobering up because I tried everything in my power to sober him up, whether it was through coercion, threats, cutting him off, you know, threatening divorce, you know, everything. I tried, I mean, I tried being nice, I tried being mean, you know, and nothing I did sobered him up. One of the things that I, that I learned when I was detaching with love was if I had ex or, uh, plans like for the weekend or just plans for the night, if something happened where he was unable to make it, I still went anyways. And I still went happily and I went um, without malice against him, knowing that the reason why he's not there is because he's sick, not because he was mad at me. And so the weekend he got sober, that's exactly what happened. And I'd already put that into practice a few times. Um, we, I'd gone camping um, with um, some other family friends of ours, some, you know, a couple friends of ours and, and their kids. And he was be there and he couldn't make it, you know, and I still went and with my daughter and we had a great time, you know. And so I had some practice with, um, with just even just going to dinner, you know, or um, Thanksgiving, you know, he missed Thanksgiving one year because he couldn't make it. <laughs> and instead of getting angry at him. So anyways, that weekend uh, plan was we we're gonna go to Houston for my, um, my niece's birthday. And uh, he was supposed to have the, ha the car packed. And when I got home from work, we were gonna hit the road. So I got home from work at five on a Friday and he was passed out on the couch drunk. And so my daughter and I got home and came inside. He was, car was not packed. And um, he woke up and saw, was like, oh my gosh, no, I'm not drunk, I'm not drunk, I'm not drunk, you know, and trying to like, make up for lost time. And, and I was like, listen, it's totally fine. Like, I'm not accusing you of being drunk, but are you sure you want to come? Like, we're about to have a five hour drive to Houston. And he kind of got really somber and was like, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to be able to come. And I was like, that's all right. You know, I'm not, I'm not angry at you. I'm really sorry that you're in the place that you're at, but but we're going to go, you know, you know that we need to go. And he's like, absolutely. And, and we kind of parted, like he was, you know, 
upset with himself that he, I mean, I don't even see, even say that he let us down. I think he was sad that he let himself down, you know, because he absolutely wanted to be there. I mean, it was a family thing. Like this is, you know, and so off we went and, you know, I talked to him a couple of times, but this weekend I didn't bother him a ton. You know, I didn't call him over and over and text him over and over and see how he was. What time did you wake up? And what did you eat for lunch? And what did you make for dinner? You know, like I, it was just, you know, we lived our life and sometime at that point during the weekend, he had called and said, you know, I just want you to know I'm, I'm, I'm trying really hard to get sober. You know, I'm trying really hard not to drink today. And I was like, okay, good. You know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, you know, call me if you have a problem, you know, um, because I was, I was worried that he would have a seizure while we were gone because that was absolutely a part of our life at that point um, because he was actively dying every time he would sober up there would be a health incident um not necessarily a seizure but an incident of some sort we got home a couple days later it was labor day weekend so i think we came home that monday evening you know what's funny is i the entire drive home my plan was i i was at this point where I no longer wanted to be married to him because I didn't want to live in this life where my daughter grew up with, an, with a dad who was unable to be a part of her life. But I also was very sad about that decision because I still loved him very much. And I knew how much he loved us. And I knew that he wasn't drinking because, or was drinking because he didn't love us. I knew that, you know, in my heart of hearts, I knew it. But I also just, I couldn't be a volunteer in that relationship anymore. And so I told myself, I had an appointment with an attorney that next week. And I'd already made an appointment with an attorney before, but I'd always canceled it. But this time I didn't cancel it. And I was like, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna talk to God while I drive home from Houston for five hours. My daughter's gonna fall asleep because that's what she does um, when we drive that far. And, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to terms and come to peace with this decision, because that was another thing my sponsor kept telling me was, it's okay. You don't have to make the decision to divorce him today. Cause I'd be like, I'm done with him. I'd call her up and be just so angry. And she's like, yeah, but I don't want you to make that decision when you're angry, sleep on it, come to terms with it, come to peace with it. Then you'll know you're ready. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to come to terms with it. I'm going to come to peace with it. And so I'm dri we're driving home and this little two and a half year old, no three, she's, she's three at this point. She's three years, three months. And she chatted my ear off the entire drive home, never even yawned, <laughs> which was not normal for her. Normally we would get in the car and she'd be out before we would even be like halfway out of Houston. <laughs> so I was unable to, you know, kind of have that that quiet time in my brain while we drove home. And um, anyways, we got home that night and he actually hadn't drank that day. Now, I don't know if how many days prior he hadn't drank, but that day he was definitely not drunk. And the next day he didn't drink. And the next day he didn't drink. And I mean, he went through it. He was absolutely going through all withdrawal symptoms, you know, shaking and um, I mean, there's a whole laundry list of things that a person goes through with withdrawals. Um, and he went through it. And fortunately, this time he did not have seizures. And um, I don't know how his liver did not disobey him, <laughs> but it didn't, you know, and 
and he hasn't had a drink since. And, and I had literally zero to do with it. He called a person who is now his sponsor and they worked it out. You know, he worked it out with himself, his higher power and his sponsor. And, you know, here we are almost six years later and um, we've gone through a lot in the last five and a half years. We have, um, we absolutely wanted to have another baby. We absolutely wanted to continue growing our family. And that didn't work out the way we wanted to, you know? We've been through some really serious trials and tribulations in that front, some sadness. We've had three different miscarriages. And, and um, I mean, with that comes a lot of grief and a lot of sadness and a, um, a lot of just an emotional turmoil that some people be like, oh my gosh, is that gonna trigger him to drinking, you know? And people would absolutely ask me that, especially for the first time. And his response is, there, there are no triggers that are gonna trigger me into drinking, you know? Um, I, I have a spiritual life that I lead and it gets me through that. And, you know, we were able to both tap into our own spirituality, really truly with the help of this, of, of learning how to have a spiritual life um, to get through that grief, to get through it together and separately. You know, we had our own grief separately, but then we had our grief together as a couple. You know, I, I like to say that God has his own timing in my life when it looks like it's, an, I'm, I'm asking him to answer my prayers and it looks like the answer is no, but really the answer is not right now. And, um, and you know, and, and to be at peace with that was not always easy, but at the end of the day, I always was able to find peace with that in my, in, in my own, internally, in my own head, in my own soul, to find peace with the answer is not right now. And it, it may be not right now forever. <laughs> you know, here we are and we, we did get pregnant and we do have a viable little baby on his way um, and should be here in two months. So that's where we're at today and I'm very grateful for it. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. It's so, I think you're so inspiring and the fact of how much you can tell that you have healed and that, you know, God has really transformed you from the inside, you know, um, and and I think your story is going to be inspiring to a lot of, a lot of family members. Um, so I think it's wonderful. Um, so I guess the, the last question that I want to ask you is, well, maybe there's two. The first one is what has been the biggest gift that your recovery has brought to you? Mm. I think the biggest gift, it's kind of twofold. It's brought me uh, a sense of peace that, that I can bring into my relationships with, with everybody in my life, whether that's my husband, my, my family members, uh, my coworkers, even, you know, somebody having road rage in the car next to me, you know, instead, I don't have to be reactionary anymore. I can pause in the moment. And I mean, I couldn't tell you the last time I honked at somebody and flipped them off when I'm driving, you know, because truly 
it, it, it doesn't frazzle me anymore. You know, like I just, I can approach life in a much more calm manner, even when five, five years ago, Tanya would have flipped out at, at a situation, mainly uncontrollable situations, you know? Um, like this house that we just moved into, for example, we moved in and we love this house. It's like, you know, it's our dream house. This is where we want to be for the next, you know, till this baby is in college, you know, if he chooses to go to college, but three days into it, the third night we were here, we had a huge leak in our attic and we didn't know it and proceeded to leak over half the house. And so now a week and a half into this house, we are getting all of our walls torn out. <laughs> We're having to mitigate the house because one of the closets ended up growing mold. I mean, like crazy things have happened in the last 10 days. And I haven't yelled at anybody. I haven't cussed anybody. I haven't, I haven't even cried. You know, it's just kind of like, well, this is a sucky situation, but it's all right. Like it's all fixable. You know, is it going to take time to fix? Yes. Is it inconvenience? Yes, but yeah, you know, it is what it is. You know, the, the, I mean, I have my health, I have my family's health, you know, we're, we're good. So I think that's probably the peace and serenity that I get every single day just to approach situations that normally would have really thrown me for a loop is probably the biggest gift I've been given. That's, on, that's awesome. Um, well, my final question is, if you could say one thing uh, to the struggling family member, what would you want to say to them who's listening? Absolutely. I would tell that person that it is going to be okay. We don't know what life is going to look like tomorrow or next week or a year from now, but you absolutely can still love your family member, your loved one. You can still care for them. You don't have to write them off um, and you don't have to take their addiction or their alcoholism personally. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Be willing to just um, respond in a different way and um, the rewards will come. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Tony, you are just such a light. And so I'm so grateful that I got this opportunity to talk with you for the last hour. And if you ever need anything at all, um, I don't know what you need, but you can always call me. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so you have my number and hopefully I will get to see you again. Absolutely, please. And you know, same, same to you. If you come across family members that yes. you know that you feel like could use a little support or use some guidance please you know have them reach out to me I mean my phone I always say is like you know when my phone rings with another family per, uh, family member of someone that I've never met is calling like to me that is my higher power calling to say hey here you go you know pass on what you learned because what was so freely given to me the, the one thing I can do is freely give it to somebody else because um, I would Are not be here today if it wasn't for somebody being that person for me. Wonderful. Well, I'm sure I will be giving your number out. So thank you for that. Absolutely. All right. Thank well, you again for yes. asking me to be here today. It was a pleasure and I'm so grateful to, 
to be here and to, to you know, to be a recovered family member. It's, it's yes. So All right. Much. Thank you. Bye. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenhouse.org.